Hello, everyone. Welcome back to I See What You're Saying, the Discipline Listening Podcast. I'm Michael Reddington, and today I am beyond excited to share our guest with you, Dr. David Matsumoto. Dr. Matsumoto is a world-renowned expert in emotion, culture, and nonverbal communication. He's a PhD. He was a professor of psychology at San Francisco State University, and he runs a company called Humantel. Humantel was created and is dedicated to training professionals and investigators alike all around the world how to accurately interpret the communication they're seeing within the context of the situation for indications of shifting emotion and what those motions may mean or shifting emotions may mean based on what we're looking to accomplish and who we're speaking with in the context of the conversation. I highly recommend checking out Humantel and Mr. Matsumoto's work. He has published over 400 academic works, articles, and books. I'm a huge fan of his book, Nonverbal Communication, and I'll make sure to include a link to it in the show notes. He's worked with companies and agencies globally. He's taught at the FBI Academy in Quantico. He's done work for the Department of State. He was a part of the group consulting on the High Value Interrogation Group. He has done so much work. He's made significant contributions to the worlds of psychology and human communication on many levels. Beyond his academic and professional credentials, he is also an eighth-degree judo black belt. He's the founder of the East Bay Judo Institute. He's a two-time Olympic judo coach and in 2021 was elected to the United States Judo Federation Hall of Fame. He really is an amazing guy who's super generous with his time. I'm so glad to be able to share our conversation together today. Real quick, do have to thank our sponsors, Humantel being one. Thank you very much to Dr. Matsumoto and Humantel. Please check out humantel.com for the very best online training for learning how to observe for shifting emotions that you can find anywhere. And if you're interested in checking it out, please enter the code in Quasive 25, I-N-Q-U-A-S-I-V-E 25 for a 25% discount on all their long on their online training, courtesy of Dr. Matsumoto. Also want to thank Brittany Nicole, Connor Savarder, and the whole team over at Emotional Intelligence Magazine. Please visit ei-magazine.com to take a look at all of the wonderful emotional intelligence content that they're curating over there. They've got a team of authors. They're aggregating content. They're constantly putting up podcasts, videos, articles. Please go check them out and everything they have going on there. And of course, the International Association of Interviewers. For all the investigative interviewers maybe watching, please check out certifiedinterviewer.com for all the latest content, events, updates, and resources that the International Association of Interviewers are putting out for investigators around the world. We really are grateful for all of their support. So thank you all for being here with us today. And without further ado, our conversation with Dr. David Matsumoto. Good afternoon, David. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. It is my honor and pleasure to do so. I really appreciate you sharing the time, and I've been so excited for this conversation in particular. We got to know each other through the International Association of Interviewers, an organization with which we both support. And through the conversations we've had there, just being turned on to your research, which I'm an enormous fan of, I quote quite often. And in fact, your book, Nonverbal Communication, is one that I recommend to pretty much every audience that I speak to. Um, but even learning more about you, just your history as a person, your research, your experience in martial arts, all things that I would love to be able to dive into today. But in the interest of time, uh, your specialty, and please correct me where I need to be corrected, at least professionally, has been the study of nonverbal communication with a specific emphasis on truth and deception and cross-cultural aspects of communication as well. I would love if you could just give us an idea of what drew you to this field initially. <laughs> well, in the in the in the um, anxiety of being evasive, let me first say thank <laughs> you very much, Michael, for allowing me to to inviting me to be part of your your podcast and to share this time with you and your audience. And I hope we have a chance to talk about this little thing too. <laughs> thank you. Because you will see that I my mine is thoroughly annotated and noted here. Um, because I, I do believe it is a valuable, valuable contribution to anybody doing investigative interviewing. But 
directly to your question. Um, I, I hate to be uh, so so uh, to disappoint somebody, but I had no idea I was going to do what I currently do. <clears throat> when I was an undergraduate at the University of Michigan about a thousand years ago, I was putzing around on campus. And, um, you know, I was not, I was a psych major when I was a junior, but I, I was not a psych major to begin with. Um, in fact, I, I started out thinking I was going to be a physician. And so I went, I, I went pre-med to, to U of M. Uh, in, I started as a freshman in 1977. And, uh, and I realized that medicine or, or at least med the medicine that I knew and that I came in contact with was not for me. And I had a friend who suggested I take some psych courses and I said, okay, I would. And I did, and I did well in it, but I had no idea why. And so, <laughs> and so I was doing well in school and the, the, the there was an honors program in the psychology department. And the person in, who was running it, Eugene Professor Eugene Bernstein, who happened to be a really famous guy, but I had no idea of this, you know, um, asked me to be part of the honors program. And I said, and this is my junior year, it was 1979. And I said, sure, what do I got to do? And he says, well, you got to find, a, find, a, find a, a faculty member to support you and do a study. I said, great, what is that? I had no idea what a study was. And he says, what are you interested in? And I said, well, and I surely had and still have this interest, which is how young children and infants can understand their caretakers without knowing the language. Because anybody who's got a baby knows they know exactly what's going on with you without without talking, right? Without yes. without processing words as we know them. So I've always had that 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 interest, and I told Professor Bernstein that, and he said, "Ah, you got to go talk to that guy over there, who his name happened to be Robert Zions, who is a very very famous social psychologist." I had this, no idea. I went to his office, introduced myself. And um, and it turned out that summer I was going to Japan for judo training. And I told him that. And he said, well, listen, why don't you do a study while you're there? Do a cross-cultural study. I said, okay. And so I set up a study where kids um, listen to what we know now as nonverbal vocal cues of emotion. And I did the study in Japan. And I came back and did it in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And that was my first study. And um, I got into graduate school. And I came here to UC Berkeley. And Professor Zions at, at Michigan said, wow, when you go to Berkeley, go and look up this guy, Ekman. He's, he studies emotion, too. I said, okay. Because, I, you know, I just do what I'm told to do. You know, Mike? So so I said, okay. So I came to Berkeley. I looked up Ekman. You know, this is the days when you write a letter on a typewriter. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm typing letters. And I, and I happened to go back to Hawaii for the summer because I'm born and raised in Hawaii. He wrote me back on a letter. <laughs> and when you come when you come to school, drop by. And I said, okay. So I did. And Professor Ackman took me under his wing, and we started a directed reading, uh, totally voluntary on his own, by the way, because he's at he was at UC San Francisco, and I was at UC Berkeley, so there was no no obligation on his part to do any of this. And I struck up a, I did a one semester directed reading, and then he invited me to be a volunteer in his laboratory. And you know what? Uh, I'm going to make a long story short, but. I, as I just said, I just do what I do because I continue to do it. Kind of keep your nose at the grindstone kind of thing. It either makes yes, you yes. smart or it gives you a flat nose. You know. <laughs> so, anyway, that was 81 when I came here. And I've been doing the same thing ever since. And so I kind of am doing this right now as a continuation of, of what I've been doing because I, that's that's what I do. I continue to do it. It's like the martial arts thing, right? You work on something, you keep working on it, you keep working on it, you keep working on it. And at some point, it's it's this thing that you polished from a rock becomes a jewel. And, you know, that, not that I'm calling my research a jewel, but it's, I think it's that process that that I just happen to resonate with. And, and that's how I got into this field. And that's how I've been doing what I do until now. That's fantastic. I will call your research many jewels, and I will I will say that as loud as as anyone will allow me to. You're um, what was it like creating that relationship with Paul Ekman so early on? Well, here, here's the thing, right? I mean, the Ekman I knew in 1981 was not the Ekman everybody else knew later on because he had just done he had just published the universality study, the original universality studies. He was just putting the finishing um, um, 
touches on facts, the facial action coding system. Yes. His research, I mean, in, when his research first came out, it was still not as well recognized as as it would become later on. And so, and I had no idea of any of this stuff. You know, I was just a young guy. Um, and and so we, I, I, I mean, it was just another elder um, professor in my life who I respected, but like I respected anybody else. And, you know, of course, he later turned out to be one of the gods of, of the field of emotion. And, but it was, he, he was never like that with me. And, he, and it wasn't his time yet for that, you know? And so mm-hmm. we, we just interacted like normal people. And by, by the way, Bob Zions back at the University of Michigan also had just won the Distinguished Scientific Contribution Award from APA in 1979. And I had no idea of that either. Wow. Yeah. And so I'm very fortunate to have had two APA Distinguished Scientific Contribution Award winners to mentor me over my life. And, and they couldn't be any different, just, just humans interacting with each other. And um, later on, of course, in the mid-80s, when, when Ekman's reputation and that research really took off, was when was when the 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 you know the world kind of changed all around us about about emotion and the debates and and all kinds of things about universality versus cultural specificity. But back to your question, I mean, it was it was just like working with anybody else, to tell you the truth. You know, I mean, and, and I learned a lot. I learned a lot from him and the unsung hero of that pair, Wally Friesen, because you'll notice a lot of publications that have Ekman and Friesen and yes. Friesen was the behind the scenes nuts and bolts guy and Ekman was okay. the big ideas writing guy and they were a great combination um, but I remember a lot I learned a lot from Wally Friesen as well and from that combination I I, I, I was very fortunate to launch my career in this area. That's Again, I wish we had hours just to kind of talk through some yeah. of those experiences. Oh, yeah. For me, it sounds a bit similar, although markedly different. I got into my career entirely by accident. It was a part-time job that they must have been short of managerial candidates because they promoted a friend of mine and myself. And then the next thing you know, here we are. But the experience sounds similar to meeting Dave Zalowski and the team at Wicklander Zalowski. Okay. Yeah, people who were really at the tip of the spear in so many ways for what they were doing that, you know, behind the curtain were some of the nicest, most down-to-earth human yes. beings who took yes. me under their wing and taught me so much. Relationships like that are yes. just so critical, and, and I'm, I've been very fortunate to have them. Well, uh, yeah, and I've, I've had the good fortune to be uh, to interact with them as well extensively, as you know, and, and I'm a member of their advisory board, although I feel guilty because I don't have as much free time to get to become to go to their meetings and whatnot but i think you're exactly right whenever i have interacted with them and and the group around them they're yes. just warm nice people right and it's very different you can tell different organizations have have different cultures and you have a mm-hmm. different feel to them and we don't have to go there but yeah but yeah that and there's an example there's a great story there right about how they emerged and evolved to what they that great interviewing uh, technique that they have right now too. Yes, and we will have all of them on this show at one point nice. or another to to share different perspectives on the entire nice. journey. Nice. With the time we have, I'd love to focus a little bit on your research, which is voluminous. But if you had to say, and this might be a nitpicky question from my part, but looking back at all the research that you've done, if you had to choose even two or three, what would you say have been some of your most important contributions to the world of communication? That's a really tough question, you know, because, and you might imagine, I get asked that question a lot. And the, one of the reasons why it's tough for me is because I gauge the contribution not not necess- not only in terms of its citation rates and how how much you know how well known it, it is and how how many people talk about it, but it's you know every 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 publication is is like is like an interview, right? Everyone is unique, everyone is different, everyone has their own heroes and heroic characters and actions. And um, and so you know when I think about this particular question, I it's always it's always tough for me because every single one, regardless of how well it is known, has a backstory to it that has meaning to a bunch of people, and 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 it's the labor of love 
for lack of a better term, that comes to the point where you get that publication. And the publication is actually the public face of it is it's it's for lack of a better term is it's the end point of the sausage making process right yes yes and there's all these people that help you create that sausage and and it was very meaningful in terms of a contribution for so many of them as well and myself my in my career however given given and i and, and i could point to any single one article and think to give you the backstory about that and who that cool author was and what it meant for that cool author to do that study in that way and how they we worked and whatnot. But I got to say, at this point in time in my career, probably in terms of empirical research, it might be some of the studies I did with uh, judo athletes at the Olympic Games in Athens, because a lot of people know that research. And then the subsequent study with the blind athletes. Yes. Because that had so, so much import and was so unique at the time because we we're out of the laboratory we got real life behavior. You got people from all around the world. You got spontaneous actions. You got raw emotions and the cover-up of raw emotions. <laughs> and so um, probably those, I would point to those as some of the most well-known in terms of contributions, in terms of their scientific contribution to the field. But the, yeah, I mean, let, let's go with that for, for, for that, uh, to that answer. Perfect. Thank you. For those that may not be familiar with that specific study, are there one or two top takeaways from it that you can share with the group? For oh, sure. listeners who might be thinking, well, okay, that sounds cool, but what did you learn? Oh, sure. Um, first of all, I'll give you the takeaways and we can talk a little bit about methods if you'd like to do that and how, how I came to those. But the takeaway is when the emotions are elicited spontaneously, and that's the key, right? Spontaneously, people all around the world will, will have uh, the impulse and will express those emotions spontaneous in exactly the same ways in their faces. Um, soon thereafter, maybe, and in according to our research as well, within a second thereafter, there can be the cover-up of what we call display rules that everybody learns and how to manage their expressions in, in social situations. Um, so there's it's clear to us that there's a, a cross-cultural universal basis to facial expressions of emotion. And then the culturally unique, very variable um, managed expressions that also exist. Uh, but back to the the universal ones, the, the, the study of the blind athletes make it very clear that we all humans have are, are born with the innate capability to produce those expressions and, and have those emotions and produce those expressions. And because of that, that has enormous implications for so many things in real life, like just communicating with people across cultures, communicating with people within cultures every day, um, to interviewing, to negotiation, to sales, to mother-infant uh, interactions, um, physician and patients, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's, a, it's one of the, it's, it's, pro it's probably the closest thing where we have to a universal language that transcends words. And I think, I think that finding actually, which mine was not the first, but why, mine was one of the later nails that are starting to, you know, close that the close that answer. I mean, the 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 question started with Darwin, of course, but I think our research was one of those that started to make that pretty de definitive. And so, it's got a lot of implications for a lot of real world phenomena. I think about it frequently. In fact, uh, I was recently watching the World Baseball Classic. I'm a sure. big baseball fan. Oh, and yeah. when I was watching the United States team play the Japanese team sure. in the, the final game, I was thinking about your research study as I was watching both teams celebrate and then their reactions to their celebrations, just a big moments yeah. within the game. Of course. of course. And the immediate reactions are all the same everywhere, right? Once you get everybody in front of a press conference, however, now we're talking about culturally mediated expressions, and so one of the so that's an interesting distinction to make, you know. And, and as you know, there's there are people who who um, there's some debates about everything in science, which there should be, um, but I'm I'm pretty sure of this finding and and its implication, its solidity in academic empiricism and its implications for real world phenomena. It sounds perfect to me. <laughs> I don't have the academic background, but having read it, and then I had one similar experience, much smaller sample size, where I was teaching a seminar down at Fletzi in Glencoe, and there happened to be one blind student in the class, born blind. And on the second day of the program, this was at the end of, I believe, a 12-week 
program that the students had gone through. So they'd been all living at Fletzy for 12 weeks. So by the time they got to the second day with me, I'm sure you can imagine what the tone of that room was like with those students. So I was pulling them up front and playing games and, you know, causing different emotional reactions and things. And the group started asking me to call the blind gentleman up front and do it with him. And I was scared. Honestly, I was scared. Like, sure. I, you know, I want to be very respectful. I don't want to yeah. lose my job. There's a relationship between my company at the time and, and Fletzy. But the gentleman insisted on coming up. Of course. It's okay. Here we go. And he yeah. comes up front. And I literally remember thinking to myself, this is how I lose my job. <laughs> I start asking him questions. And this is somebody who has never had eyesight in his life. Well, his face starts reacting sure. identically to sure. everybody else's. And of course. Just, just helping the class understand that just because he didn't have sight, that doesn't mean he doesn't have the rest of his senses to help build mental pictures that he can still access and experience life and have the same emotions that display the same way. Of course, of course. And, you know, blindness, as you know, occurs for many different reasons. But as you say, the, the, what's going on on the periphery is different than what's going on in the central command centers of our brain. And in that central command centers of our brain, just as we have things, parts of our brains that help regulate eating, breathing, sleeping, we have a part of the brain that re that regulates and has emotions. And there's a reason why we have those emotions and, and our expressions. And, and those will occur separately, as, you, as you're mentioning, from whether we have sight or not, whether we can hear or not, whether we can talk or not, and all of those other sensor, sensory kinds of experiences we have. As we're talking about emotions, I would love to see if there's a way we could flip the coin for a moment. Sure. What have you learned from your research that might help us learn to control or compartmentalize our own emotions to help us be more productive in our interactions? Well, that's a great, that's a really, really great question. And um, part of it, so, you know, I'm, I'm having these perseverations um, to, to your what I understand of as your procedure, because I, one of the big takeaways I, I, I took from your book and our discussions in the past and having read some of the manuscript, of course, was about that, that the distinction between active listening and dis disciplined listening, because you're exactly right. Doing that active listening part, we can be listening, but having that internal debate, like you talk about in our head about all kinds of things, um, whether it's you and it may not be case related or not. Right. And part of that is, is, is going to be um, managing our own emotional reactions. And to tell you the truth, I mean, I, I think that part managing your own emotional reactions is such a central skill to have for so many people, whether it's a, an investigator dealing with a tough case, dealing with a tough subject on a tough interview, or a jujitsu player or a judo player in the middle of a tough match or anybody else in a tough situation. One of the problems is that emotions are, we are wired such that emotions, when they occur, reduce our ability to think critically. So the more emotional we become, even though we may be hiding it, the more emotional we become, the more, the less able we are to think critically. And, and the, you're, you know, when we're talking about an interview or many other situations, a judo match, you need to be able to think critically, even though you're hot. And that's the key, right? And so, so I, I'm interpreting your question like that and yes. I, I'm broadening the, 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 the application because that central skill has so much application to so many parts of our lives, right? I, I think it's the core to grit. I think it's the core to resilience. I think it's the core to everything else. It's this ability to manage our emotions well. And so then I'll go back to you. what's what's your question is what I why I think I remember your question, which was how can how can we how can we do that, right? Yes. There's so many ways to do it. I mean and there there I mean one can one all one only has to look at the internet, which is part partly the, the source of all uninformed opinion of the world. But anyway, that's a story. <laughs> But you, you, we all find there's so many methods to start regulating your emotions and whatnot. And to tell you the truth, I think there's a lowest common denominator to all of them, which is increasing our capacity to breathe well. Increasing our capacity to breathe well, however we do that, maybe it's from meditation, maybe it's from cardio exercise, 
no matter how, as long as we do it in a structured way, if we increase our ability to breathe generally, that increase of our, our breathing capacity brings along with it an increased ability to become aware of our emotions and to regulate them. And I happen to think that when those who are better able to regulate their emotions, whatever way, shape, or form, are, are better breathers, and thus becoming a better breather will help you one regulate those emotions in a moment. Thus, having a better practice, having a practice of some sort that allows one to do that will allow people to be in the moment better, will not will be able to uh, become aware of their emotions better, be able to have disciplined listening better. I think there's so many peripheral benefits to that, um, to that, to that skill. And that's what that's of course the one major part of the skill that you you talk about in the book as well. And but I think that that is such a central skill for all of us to have just to function more effectively in everything we do. I'm in a hundred percent agreement. And I swear to everybody, this conversation is not scripted in any way, shape, right. or form. I have no idea. I a hundred percent agreement in is a I have a clear memory as a white belt in jujitsu when I lived in Connecticut being stacked, like all the way stacked elbows to my ears by a large former Marine. And I didn't know any better. So I'm just squirming. And it probably took me 10 to 15 seconds to realize he was whispering in my ear. And all he was saying was breathe, breathe, breathe. And I've literally never forgotten that. And when I was in Chicago working for WZ, I remember doing an interrogation locally. And it was at a time where I've been traveling a lot. I wasn't eating well. I hadn't been working out, hadn't been taking good care of myself. And I felt like I wasn't as composed as normal. I felt like I couldn't think as well during the interview. And about two thirds of the way through, I caught myself breathing heavy. Mm. And as I reflected on that interview driving home, thankfully it ended well, but as I'm reflecting on it, it dawned on me that by falling out of shape, I had actually reduced my capacity to conduct effective investigative sure. interviews. Oh, sure. So I, you know, breathing is the key to life, obviously, but being able to keep that oxygen and blood flow in my brain, yeah. it's yeah. super important. Yeah. So I mean, you, you, guys, here's the topic we can do another six hours on, right? But um, that, that, and I, I, you're right. When we get hot, the breathing happens. And so what, what, what I what I found, and I, I I try to teach as much as possible whenever I have the opportunity, is to consciously regulate your breathing so that you increase your breathing capacity. So because if we increase our breathing capacity, that the the changes in our breathing won't happen just unconsciously and will be taken in the back to it. Once that happens, we we will be aware of that. And awareness is one of the keys, right? Once we can be we can be aware, we can then be on top of regulating ourselves better so that we can get be, be on task again. It's not that our task is to be regulating our emotions. we got some other tasks to do, like interview this person, get to the truth over here, have this match over here, do whatever it is. But this is the, to me, that's the kind of the engine that allows us to have the, a broader thinking, critical thinking base so that we can get the everything else done. And if we don't, I mean, you know, and I know many people, both physical skills uh, physical tasks and mental tasks, like interviewing, um, those who can't handle their emotions well will not be as effective. Those that can regulate their emotions better are more effective. I mean, it's, it's just it's just the way it is. And so um, I think it's a central skill for, for everything that we're doing. I love the answer. I love it. While we're kind of talking around the concept of investigative interviewing, yeah. I'm sure you get this so much more than I do. But it doesn't matter what I'm teaching. I just did a class here locally to help parents and students have better skills and techniques to talk through the college preparatory process. Okay. And even in that session, yeah. I had people asking me about common myths related to truth and deception. <laughs> it's not even what we're here for. Yeah, yeah. Um, so from your perspective, which does not get more well-researched, does not get more credible, from both the academic standpoint, the practitioner, the people you've worked with, we could go on. From your experience, what do you see are the most common myths? And this oh. will be a two-part question. First part is, what do you see are the most common myths that people fall prey to as they attempt to detect deception? Oh, well, so there's several. I'll give you one that that nonverbal behavior 
or anything for that matter, is a reliable sign of uh, deception. Uh, so I always understand nonverbal behavior as signals of mental states. And when we're in an interview, sometimes those signals of mental states can be reflective of some kind of deceptive thoughts in people's heads, no question. But sometimes there are signals of mental states that are not necessarily reflective of the deception, of a deception, but they're in their heads. It's important to note them. I mean, you know, because we want to know what else that person is thinking other than whatever they're saying. Yes. Because I want to be in that person's head. And the fact of the matter is, whatever a person is saying is only a portion of what's in their head. And so if I get a better understanding of what that what, what's in that person's head, I can then ferret that out by asking better more questions and listening to more answers and 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 asking strategically guided questions. Um, but if I if I don't have the thought that they're, you know, I just take words on their own, um, that's a pretty limited view, I think. And thus the 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 myth out there is that that, that, that you know, I, I know that a, a lot of my work also is associated with these um, behavioral indicators of deception. Actually, when I teach it, I talk about behavioral indicators of mental states. And we're gonna we're gonna I'm gonna help you read those mental states. Whether they are deceptive or not, we're gonna go and figure that out through the interview process, part of which is it's listening well, right? Um but our job in, in when we want to learn behavioral indicators is to get a better idea of what those indicators mean and ignore the ones that don't mean anything. I mean, that, that's the big deal, right? And so th- things like, I mean, there's so many myths, like looking away and looking down and um, what's called gaze aversion is a, yes. is a deception indicator. That's never been supported in research and it's not supported in, 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 in field experiences, I believe. I think a lot of people think that because they associate with their observation of that behavior with other uh, clear um, deceptions and they, they link that, but in reality, it's not a, it's not a clear indicator of deception. It is a clear indicator of something else, you know, (laughs) and if we know what that is, then we can get that idea of what the mental state is. Um, But I think the important thing about behavior, behavior, nonverbal behavior is that some of them are very clear indicators of certain types of mental states. And what I would want to do is if I'm talking to somebody is put that, when I see it, it's as exactly as if they're telling it to me. And so I'll put it together with, with a person's words and I'll, I'll figure out whether that all makes sense to me or not. And if it doesn't make sense, I'm, I'm coming back. If it's important to me, I'm coming back. And that's how I understand this thing. And so back to your question, I mean, the, the myth is that this, scratching my nose, I'm now I'm lying to you or, or I've covered my mouth. Now I'm, now I'm covering up my lies or, or all the things that we've heard, right? In reality, I would I I generally don't want to make the leap that a behavior is is indicative indicative of deception. It's indicative indicative of a mental state. Some of them are, and I want to figure out whether those mental states are leading me to a deception in that person's head. Again, I mean, obviously, all I can do is is agree, but a hundred percent. We like to call them alert signals. Something yep. just changed in their thought pattern. Now that I'm alerted to that, what yep. does that mean in the context of this situation yes. in yes. relation to the goals I'm trying to achieve? Oh, yeah. I, you know, I, I think that um, in reading your book and your manuscript previously as well, I mean, I think there's a lot. Of course, that's why we're talking, right? There's a lot of overlap <laughs> in what I want to say, the overall perspective of how we understand not only behaviors, but words, right? Coming at you at an interview or any kind of interaction. I mean, we're taking it all as information. The question is what, how, what we are going to make of that information. Those, that information is just information on, their, on themselves. And we're going to have to create, we're going to have to figure out what meaning they have to that individual. So yes. I think we have a lot of alignment on, on our overall perspective about that. Certainly. If we look at applying these skills outside of traditional interviewing or investigative interviewing, leadership scenarios, parenting scenarios, business development, any any human communication really of any sort, what would be your strongest recommendations for people who would like to develop the skill of understanding what people are thinking and feeling in the moment? Oh, well, I hate to give you a commercial. <laughs> <laughs> Please do. That's okay. Because if you don't, I'm going to give it at some point in, in this 
conversation. Well, before I give the commercial, let me just say, number one, learn to observe. Just as there sh we should all have a disciplined listening method, we should have a disciplined observational method. A lot of people talk with others who are not actually watching them, right? Yes. Especially nowadays with these things here, I see people talking with each other like this. And that that's that's not a I mean that's not an effective way to have an interaction, right? And so I think observation is is part of the part of the our large equation to being able to do that. And so people ask me all the time, what's what what what's what's the one tip I would give her? I would say start start really observing because you can look but not observe. Very right? true. Right? And it's, it's like you can hear but not listen. Um and so let's start observing. And then let's start thinking about what 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 we're observing means. And in that level, I make a big um, deal, and our company makes a big deal about learning validated signals of mental states, because there's a lot of behavior that we do, a lot of it which is not validated. It means that it's not that research is not shown exactly what it means, and for that reason, if you train on non-validated or unvalidated behaviors, inevitably for investigative interviewers, you will go down a path that is not that effective because you will be trying to interpret behavior that don't have a reliable meaning in itself. And programs like that exist out there. On the other hand, where I want to stick one is what I call validated indicators. These are validated by science, but also vetted in the field. And if we stick to those, then when we're observing, we can we can be be confident about what we're how we're going to interpret what we're seeing. Facial expressions of emotion are, is is one big one, and especially when they're spontaneous and immediate reactions, because everybody does a cover up, right? But when we're looking at spontaneous, immediate reactions, everybody's the same. Learning about those and learning to read those can be very helpful. On our website, for example, humantel.com, we have many, many, many different kinds of, of online courses that people can engage with to, to do so. Um, and like I say, we 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 only focus on validated indicators of mental states and we don't we don't spend time on the other stuff. And whether it's us or anybody else, I, I would I would suggest learn to observe as you're listening and learn about what's been validated. So you're interpreting reliable signals of mental states and putting that into your into your equation when you're talking to people. I love it. And the a way that I try to look at it is controlling the reducing the number of variables I have to address in a conversation. Yes. In theory, the fewer number of variables I have to address, the better I should be at addressing them. Yes. So having that education, breathing, creating the cognitive space, controlling yeah. the emotions, and then yes, focusing on the right cues and the right contacts are so important. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, you're exactly right. Nonverbal behavior is, the field is so huge. I've got my face, I've got emotions in the face, I got cognitions in the face, I got my hands going all kinds, I'm looking here and there, my feet may be stomping around, my body may be swaying. It's too much. Let's focus on the ones that have the biggest bang for the buck when we're talking to people because we don't have the luxury, right? I mean, we, although human brains are amazing, amazing, have amazing computing capacity, you know, we can't take in everything. So let's focus on the things that really mean a lot. And I think, you know, there's a reason why we have face-to-face -face interactions, right? It's yes. not back-to-back -back or elbow-to-elbow. -elbow. Faces are, we do that because faces are one of the major nonverbal communicators that we have. Yes. I'd love to ask you one more question sure. about your work before we transition to another topic that sure. you and I are excited to get into. Okay. Where do you see the most important work still to be done in your field? Oh, well, I don't want to sound too geeky here, but I think part, part of my answer is going to be where, what, what, how is it that emotions and expressions transition from an immediate reaction to something that's consciously covered up? in the moment. We don't have a good idea of what that's like. And that's why there's so many arguments in the field about the nature of emotion and whether they're universal or cultural specific or whatever. It's because that transition process, we, we don't have a good idea of it. And, and doing more basic science on how emotions in our brains and their neural impulses and our expressions transition from an unconscious, immediate 
process to something that we're consciously mediating in the moment because of our context. I think that's something that we need to get into a little better as a, as a scientific field. And I think there, there would be um, a lot of payoff for a lot for that to occur. I mean, I'll give you one example. Um, years ago, there was a study that I was per peripherally involved in that had to do with was like this. It was then at Michigan State. It was it was about startle responses or startle reactions. And there were flyers posted around campus that said, "Are you easily startled? Call this number. You know, back this is back in the day, right? Call this number to arrange for an interview to see if you're eligible to get into this study." So people are calling the laboratory. They're they are now in a supposed pre-interview to see if they would get into a study. Well, of course, that's the study, right? Yes. And they're being interviewed like this, and like about five feet behind them, behind a curtain, is a nine millimeter pistol that goes off. Yeah. No, no uh, blank rounds, of course. Of course, but, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Boom. And as you know, as you know, if you're not wearing ears, that thing's five feet behind you. That's loud. And so then people are, you know, they're in the middle of talking about themselves, and boom, that thing happens, which, by the way, you can't do today. And, and there's been <laughs> other replications of that study with other sounds, but not a gun. Okay. So, so we know that the, the phenomenon occurs. Mm -hmm. So, Mike, I'm going to ask you this question, okay? From the time that the gun goes off to the time that I see this person's body start to react, how much time do you think elapses? I'm going to guess it might actually be a couple of seconds before they realize what happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. 54 milliseconds. Wow. I lose. Yeah, yeah. Think about that. I mean, everybody thinks it's like that. You're exactly right. Because you said it right. Before I knew it, we're reacting before we know what it is. We're, so our minds are processing something and then acting before we know what that stuff, that's what an emotion is like, right? We're, it, those things, we're processing so fast that it's outside of our conscious awareness. And then we're starting, our behaviors are starting to, to, to get triggered. You mean it once we know what it is, then okay, I'm in this context, I'm talking to Mike, I gotta watch my expressions, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then we get the cover-up. But that initial trigger is just, I mean, trigger is the right word in this context, but the initial trigger of that emotion is just so quick and the reaction is just so quick. And and thus, from that initial 54 milliseconds, how does it go to, oh, what was that? Blah, blah, blah. Where am I? I'm talking to Mike. I gotta watch what I'm talking about. Blah, 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 blah. That transition process is something we don't know much about, either in terms of our brains or in terms of what happens with our expressions. And I think that's a that's an interesting thing that we 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 the field should look into as it moves forward in the future. Well, I'll anxiously await some hopeful updates. For me personally, speaking only for myself, yeah. I feel that the gap in time between when my emotions change, I think I feel like there's actually two gaps from when my emotions change and I identify it. And then the gap between when I identify it and I can control it. I feel those two <laughs> gaps in time are the gaps that I'm most likely to say or do something that's counterproductive to be polite, depending sure. on the situation. Oh, yeah. So, well, and, so with, and with regard to interviewing ramifications, right? I mean, it, most recent research on how our senses are processing things, this is an interesting thing, right? Because... When we're in an interview, we think that people are reacting to the content of our questions, and certainly they are. But research has also shown that the area of the brain that processes anything for its emotional relevance, that is, its action relevance for our survival, that is occurring before that, that sense goes to our cortex that we know what the words are. Which means that people are, when you're in an interview, people, your, your interviewees are reacting to what's being said before they know what it was said. We all are reacting to something that on an emotional action priming basis before we actually know the content. And that's part of the reason why we can see some reactions to our questions well before they even answer, right? Whether it's a head nod or a head shake or some kind of immediate emotional reaction, we can see that before they even know it and before they may even be able to consciously process those questions and getting on top of those things are really interesting because it gives us additional data about what's going on in that person's head as we're navigating that interview. That's fascinating. Yeah. So I could follow you down the geek trail 
for the rest of the day. Yeah, yeah. With the the limited time that we have, I'd love to pause there and pivot. So you are a relatively recently elected member of the Judo Hall of Fame. Yes. Which is such an amazing honor in and of itself. I'm imagining you started training judo at a young age. Uh, I was seven years old. I'm 63 right now, so that's 56 years of nonstop judo. And all your joints still work? Your your fingers Uh, still work? Your neck's uh, okay? Oh, my God, no. (laughs) (laughs) So I've had a bad knee that was blown out when I was 19, but I've I've been able to recover and still work on that. I'm currently dealing with some hip problems and whatnot that that I'm struggling, but Regardless, I'm I'm on a mat most most every day, and as you know, I mean we can we I, I you can make a good body weight workout just oh, without yeah. standing, right? And so the, I'm happy to I'm having to do those nowadays <laughs> a little more. But yes, um, every once in a while I feel good and I can I can still stand and move around and do all that other stuff. That's amazing to me. Yeah, I am a hobbyist jujitsu player at best. Um, so c- the comparison here is is not to be made. But a, a question that I would love to ask is how has being a lifelong – let me ask it this way, actually. How has the process of being a lifelong martial artist impacted how you communicate with other people? Well, my first thought is judo and jujitsu, of all the martial arts – are very unique because we are constantly communicating with each other, our partners. Because judo and jujitsu are one of the few martial arts where we contact, and communication occurs right here. And we're and so on some level we're learning. You know, we've been commu- we've been communicating in a very special way with others um, beyond words for all the years that we've both been doing our our respective arts and i think that once you do that we understand communication on a different level um of course there's the other parts about in the the amount of emotion regulation that we need to learn and self-regulation and the discipline and the perseverance and all of the great values that are the uh that are extracted and are the artifact not the artifacts but the the consequences of such practice but I think one of the things for me has been this, which is, you know, you just understand people on such a human level. When you're rolling on the mat, it, and I'm, I'm telling you because you, 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 I know you get it. When you're rolling on the mat, it don't matter what race you are, how old you are, what educational level or how much money you got. I mean, it's just human to human. And I think that, aspect of judo for me has helped me understand on a deeper level just how to interact with others as people because that's where i think a lot of communication starts just human to human just understanding each other on on our own basis and like um so many things in judo jujitsu you know it's there's a lot of times when people are afraid because you take yourself to the limit, a limit. Whether you take yourself there or your sensei takes you there, your <laughs> takes you there, you be there. And every day you learn about what it's like to be at your wall. And every day, and so that that brings, I think, a could, should, when done correctly, brings a great deal of humility to one's understanding of the world, especially when you see others, your brothers and sisters. Also at the wall, sometimes it doesn't go well, and you got to hang in there and keep pushing until we all build a spirit of community where where I know we've been all past this wall. And um, I, but I think going back to your question, it's just understanding each other on that human level. I mean, it don't matter who you are and what you got and how much money you got and you know what you drive. None of that matters. It's just me and this other person or me and this community of people. And I think that that's probably the biggest thing that's helped me anyway, in terms of how it, uh, it translates back to my professional life. Yes. Um, I, I think it, I think it's a, I think it's a good lesson for me to have. Uh, and, and 
dealing with all the aches and pains and being on the mat every day. It's, 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 you know, whether you, you're a, a local player or a hall of famer or whatever, every day is a humbling experience. Every day is, is a challenge that we all have to get over. And um, I think that's probably the best benefit of judo and jujitsu that translates to working with others. I agree completely. And if I may add one more from, again, a much different perspective, problem solving under stressful circumstances. Oh, sure. Of course. So always I lost a grip. I lost a position. I thought that would work. It didn't. This, this person is bigger. This person is stronger. This person is faster. That learning to be calm, as you talked about before. Right solving those problems that are happening in compounding yeah. <laughs> if, if you don't solve them yeah. fast enough. Yeah. So you, like, like many things, have tremendous experience instructing judo. I'm going to ask you a question that you probably get asked a lot, and then maybe I can ask you a second question that maybe you don't get asked quite as much. For those who may not be aware, you were one of the Olympic coaches, I believe, in the 1996 Olympics? 96 and 2000, yes. What did you learn from coaching some of the top judo players in the world that you still apply either to your business or professional life today? Wow, that's a great question. Um, what did I learn from that? The one thing that's coming to my mind right now is that is related to what we're just talking about. We all we all meet a wall or a challenge. Of course, the higher level com competitor you are, the higher the physical wall. I, I get that. But regardless of what level you're at and whatever you're doing, we all meet a wall. Every day there's walls, you know, and whether it's our business or our personal life for our personal goals or interpersonally with others. And having the discipline and the, the self-skills to know that you have you can work through those walls. I think it's something that I learned throughout all this process, not only for myself, but at the highest levels. I mean, you're talking about people who, I mean, are around the world, as you know, at the Olympic level and the world championship level, these are professional fighters. Yes. And they are, they, they, I mean, when you're a professional fighter, you're, 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 you have a lot of skills <laughs> and you're at the top level of your physical and mental conditioning. However, the mental is always the toughest because at that level, the difference between the gold medalist and the 25th place person on physical level is minuscule, is minuscule. It's how we're going to respond mentally to, to the challenge. And the challenges are occurring second by second in, some, in the match. As you mentioned, yeah. lose a grip, lose a position, you know, get hit in the face temporarily. It's the, it's the, it's the ability to, to, to rebound to deal with that in an effective manner. Some people cannot and some people can. And learning all of the stuff that I talked about earlier in terms of how we can regulate our emotions, how we can do that, that has so much peripheral benefits. I learned during the time I was an Olympic coach because separate from this conversation, after, after looking for, searching for strategies on how to help athletes be better in the moment. I mean, these are professional fighters. How we can be better in the moment. I ended up with one thing, which was, um, meditational yoga. Really, I had all, all of my teams do med meditational yoga, um, even to some small degree, mm -hmm. because if we incorporate um, regulated breathing exercises into top level physical conditioning, I think it had enormous benefit for that in the moment fight. And then I think that it has a lot of enormous benefit as we talked about earlier to so many other things. And I learned that when I was the Olympic coach. Wow, I, I came to that when I was the Olympic coach and. Um, I, I still believe it today and I still do it today. And everybody who I've got as a top player, I'll suggest that we do that. And so I think that's one of the key things that I learned is how to help people, what, whatever level you got to be even that much better by regulating oneself to, to meet the challenges that you face. I love it. So here's the question that maybe you haven't been asked before for okay. me training at a local jujitsu academy, yeah. especially with adults. I yeah. feel like the bravest person is the one who walks in the door for the very first time. Oh, yeah. 
because they're walking into a room. They don't know what to expect. They don't know yeah. who else has been there. They don't know what's going to happen next. But yeah. they literally have the bravery to open that door, borrow a gi, and step on the mat for that yep. very first time. Yeah. So the Olympians are the top fraction of a percentage of yes. athletes on the planet. What have you learned teaching white belts, brand new students, that has impacted you as a teacher, as a man, as a professional? Oh, I got to preface my my uh, my answer, okay? Because I've, I've been so removed from teaching absolute beginners for years. Okay. For a reason. It's because <laughs> on the other side, I was so involved in teaching the highest levels of competition. And even before that, that's the only type of judo I knew. Mm -hmm. So that even after I finished the Olympic uh, my 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 run as the uh, the national coach. When I went back and I I had the opportunity to teach some beginning classes, I toned it down to what I thought was really toned down, and still everybody was just dying. <laughs> <laughs> so everybody around me said, "No, no, sorry, sensei, that was not toned down." I said, "Really?" <laughs> and so I I just but I'm very fortunate every day in my dojo. Um, I, I go there because you know it's my home, right? And um, um, I, I get to be with the, the very beginning classes. And it's it's one of the great things to learn about that is to always to never forget what it's like to be a to be a beginner. Because having that that perspective is always so important. And I and I do see that now I can look back and think, I think differently about judo training for for beginners, to tell you the truth. I think it should have minimal judo. I, I think there's so many other things that we can do in a judo gi or a jujitsu gi, in a gi, on the mat, that is so much more beneficial for society today than teaching them how to do a certain technique. Get them some techniques. I get that. Um, but I think that judo today, especially in the United States, can be transformed in multiple ways to be have an even better benefit as long as we have the perspective of a white belt who's coming in, who may not, who may not you know, and you know, a lot of people come into us I, I know this is true around the country, are, are the ones that aren't gravitating to baseball or football or soccer or, or something else that's really popular. And we get a lot of kids who are may not be the most physically capable and maybe a little shy and maybe a little awkward and they're may, maybe having a little trouble in school and whatnot. And I think um, remembering that and thinking about what judo and jujitsu and other martial arts can do for that child, and it, it may not—it probably doesn't include a trip to the to the Olympics, right? I mean, if it does, that's great. But I think every—I think some of the best successes I've had, and I know I'm going long-winded on your question. No, no. Some of the best successes I've had in my judo career is not at the highest levels. Yeah, we've taken those medals, but it's taking that five-year-old was having trouble at home, trouble having trouble at school. And by eight, when they quit judo, they were able to, they, uh, they were good students. They were disciplined in school. They were respecting their parents and teachers. And I think at that point, judo did a great job. And that's, that's as much as a contribution to that child's life as, as having a medal over there for that, that professional athlete. And so I think that perspective, going back to your question, is something that is that I learn and I remember every day because every day I will be there this afternoon. And five o'clock rolls in, and a bunch of kids roll in, and um, you know it, it's on one point. I'm I'm such an old old fashioned, sorry, hard ass. You know, it's like <laughs> kids are rolling in, and I think, oh, these kids. On the other hand, then I think, ah, you know, these kids, and you think about society today and kids today, and you get into their perspective, and um, you know, it's 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 good to keep learning about that, so that I can personally grow in my vision about what we're doing. I think that's that's the biggest thing that I get from them. That's a fantastic answer. And I I feel, I'm assuming, just as strongly about the whole person benefits, especially for children, for adults. Of um, course. I have a couple of teammates that decided they wanted to start competing. One lost 60 pounds. Two other lost 30 pounds in the process, over months of the process of, of getting ready to compete. So the confidence, the physical fitness, all the things we've talked about, but especially for children, and you're right, children that might not have another place to fit in or another outlet, or, you know, they're just learning to understand themselves, how, sure. how important that is.
Sure. I actually took something from working with newer jujitsu students to speaking with my son. So my son is five at, at the time of this conversation. And, and we do have him in jujitsu as well. We'll see how long he sticks with it. But for all the reasons you just said, he's into it. We have him signed up for as long as it lasts. But I found myself working with newer students, just, you know, positional sparring, drilling, asking them, have you been shown this? Because I miss a lot of classes with travel and I don't know, did, did, was this ever shown to them or not? Because if yeah. it wasn't, I shouldn't say to them, pull half guard and get your underhook. They have no idea what I'm talking about. So it dawned on me that that is how I should be talking to my son. Mm. Because at five years old, he shouldn't know anything unless somebody told him, unless somebody taught him. And honestly, just asking my son, has somebody taught you? Has somebody shown you? Has somebody helped you? Makes it easier for him to either say, well, here's what I remember, daddy, or no, daddy, they haven't. And now he's more open to learning because he hasn't had to tell me I don't know or I can't sure. do. So sure. some of those little things that carry beyond the mat have been so important. Well, I, I, let me let me just highlight what you just said, because they might a lot of listeners may not hear what you just said. It's, it's the ability to transition your language, you know, in a way that's going to be effective, that will allow for more conversation and doesn't doesn't curtail, uh, curtail it. And I think that's a that's a very good thing. Asking more of those kinds of uh, what 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 can we say? Um, questions that allow for the exploration instead of shut it down. I think I think are very important. And and that's you know when you said that it's very interesting because I I am no longer I I I stepped down as the head instructor of our dojo, and our dojo has other very qualified instructors. However, I I feel bad for them because I'm still on the mat, right? And so. <laughs> So I, no I, I genuinely, yes. Right. And genuinely I feel bad for them and, and uh, you know, poor them because sometimes things are happening on the mat and I just can't, I, I won't be quiet. And anyway, but when I talk to somebody, it's going to be, all right. Has somebody shown you that before? Where did you learn that? Cause before I go and opine about whatever it is, I need to be giving, I want to be giving the respect to others who have, a different perspective or or a different procedure than I do, right? Even though all my instructors are my students, we can all still do it differently. And I think having that pers that way of engaging, as opposed to, oh my God, why are you doing that? Yeah. You know, is is just generally more constructive, especially today. I mean, um, communication is very different than I when it was when I was growing up in the fifties and sixties. You know, <laughs> in a very very old fashioned Japanese house. Um, it's, it's, things are just not like that. And they're not like that in Japan today. So it's, it's good to be on top of changes <clears throat> so that we can have better communication. Yes. So, um, we're right at about an hour. I want to be very respectful of your time. You mentioned a commercial earlier. I want to give you a proper commercial. So for people who are learning to develop their skills, emotional recognition, nonverbal communication and beyond, where can they access your work to develop their skills? Well, thank you. Frank, thank you for the prompt. They can access, uh, we have a website. It's www.humantel.com. That's H-U-M-I-N-T-E-L-L.com. <clears throat> You'll see that we have a number of different um, categories of online courses, from reading people to evaluating truthfulness and deception to threat assessment. And uh, and we have a cross-cultural adaptation program that involves emotional wellness and breathing, like we talked about earlier. But we have we have it couched within a cross-cultural adaptation program in our in our website. Please come and visit. I'm, you know, we have a we have a, a an email there that's info at humental.com. Anybody has questions or comments, thoughts, please let us know. I'm always happy to to respond to any kind of inquiries that we have, or my staff will. But we'll take care of anybody who's interested, especially your audience who is going to be involved in anything having to do with interviewing. I think you do a great job in this book of positioning um, reading nonverbal behavior really well and, and interpreting it really well. And so, and it's very aligned with what I, how I go about engaging with interview training as well with bringing behavior and indicators in. But anyway, that's our website. Please come and visit. Um, happy to see anybody. Well, thank you. And to add to that, I have seen you speak and I have taken at this point, I may not have taken all of the online training you offer because you continue to expand your offerings, 
but I've taken a lot of it and I will personally and loudly attest to the quality. And I will also attest to once you learn to see a lot of the things that you teach us to see, it's hard not to see them. Oh, yeah. like, that's where the contextual awareness comes into place. Yes. When you talk about like seeing someone begin to show emotion on their face, immediately shut it down and cover it up with another emotion. When we might never caught any of that before, right? If we did, we probably just caught the tail end. Yeah. But now I can say, I know you are angry. I know you don't want me to know you're angry. I know you want me to think you're happy. And in the context of this situation, here's why, and yep. here's what I should do next. Yes. And that type of intelligence is invaluable. So for anybody interested, please go to humantel.com. We will share the links. I will share links to your book, Nonverbal Communication, as well. But I will can vouch strongly enough. And we didn't get into it today because of time. But you have led training programs for any number of Fortune 500 companies, government organizations. You partnered with the FBI on their, um, the the high, I'm forgetting it now, but the high the value in the interrogation group. Yes. Yes. First, I forgot the word value all of a sudden. Under <laughs> uh, but yeah, so you've done amazing work and it's all very applicable to day-to-day -day conversations. And of course, if somebody's in Northern California and wants to train judo, they should go to the East Bay Judo Academy. Am I correct? East Bay Judo Institute. Yes. Yes. I apologize. Judo Institute. Thank you very much for that. Well, I can't thank you enough for your time, for all of your support over the years, for your kind words. Honestly, for taking the time to vet a portion of the manuscript of my of book. I know you're very busy. That meant a lot to me. Thank you so very much. And I hope sometimes in the reasonable future, we can see each other in person and have a part two of this conversation. Absolutely. Thank you so much for, for having me. And, and I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. I, that was a quick hour to tell you the truth. And so... <laughs> Anytime we talk about Judah and rolling on the mat, it's always good, you know? Well, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you soon. Once again, thank you so much to Dr. Matsumoto for sharing your time, expertise, and insight today, an invaluable resource. And hopefully people took so much out of that conversation for preparing for conversations, understanding the context, some more detail and ideas for reading the communication that we observe every day. And hopefully you enjoyed a little bit of the martial arts conversation as well. It's not too often that we get to have a conversation with somebody who has dedicated that much time and effort, not only to training martial arts, but teaching martial arts as well. And there's so many lessons that we can learn from that and apply to our daily life. So Dr. Matsumoto, thank you so much for all your time today. And of course, one more time, thank you to our sponsors. Again, Dr. Matsumoto and Humantel, thank you very much for all of their incredible online training. Head over to humantel.com. Remember to enter the code INQUASIVE25 for your 25% discount. Brittany Nicole Connor Savarda in an Emotional Intelligence Magazine, ei-magazine.com. Head over there and check out all of their online content. And of course, the International Association of Interviewers. Please check out certifiedinterviewer.com and see all the amazing things they're doing to support professional investigative interviewers around the world. Thank you all for taking the time to be here and watch our conversation today. I really appreciate it. Take care of each other and we'll see you next time. Thank you.